God will take you where you do not want to go so that he can produce in you what you could not produce on your own. And that's really the message behind Janice's faith story that you just heard. And it's also the message of the passage of Scripture that I want us to consider this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 27 today. You'll find that on page 936 of your church Bibles. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name is Randy. I'm the lead minister of the church. We're so happy to have you with us today. And we usually have a large group Bible study as a part of our worship service. We always have a large group Bible study as a part of our worship service. And we just take a book of the Bible and study through it. And uh, we are about to conclude uh, what's been a journey through the New Testament book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts can be summarized in one verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've been studying the growth of Christianity. The book of Acts chronicles the growth of Christianity from about the year AD 30 to about the year AD 63, 64. And in Acts 1 through 12, we've seen the growth of Christianity in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Primarily, not solely, but primarily through the ministry of the Apostle Peter, Acts 1 through 12. But then in Acts 13 to 28, we've seen the ministry primarily of the Apostle Paul. And Jesus told Paul that he would preach the gospel before the emperor of Rome the most powerful empire in the world at that time. Jesus promised Paul that this would happen. And Acts chapter 27 chronicles how the apostle Paul got to Rome by way of a shipwreck. And so that's what we're going to be coming upon here as we read these verses. I'm going to read verses 9 through 20, just a portion of Acts 27. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis. They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. 
Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. This is God's word. As I was reading through Acts chapter 27 in preparation for today, it dawned on me that the content in Acts chapter 27 is nearly as rich in terms of word count as the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. In other words, I'm thinking, why didn't Luke just simply say, while on our way to Rome, where Paul would preach before Caesar, we ran into a storm, but made it there safely, chapter 28. Right? Well, I mean, but as you look through these verses, you see names in verse 1. There's Julius, and he's a centurion. He's not just a centurion. He's from the Augustan cohort. And then there was this one ship that was from the Adramidium. Where's that? That's in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, just north of Ephesus on the far western side of Turkey, there along the coast. And then there's going to be another ship from Alexandria there on the continent of Africa. And uh, then there's just nautical information Right? There's this tempestuous wind. It's called a northeaster. And then uh, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. I don't hear that kind of language here in the Midwest, running under the lee of a small island. Do we have islands here in Champaign County? Anyway, there's a lot of nautical information here. There are a lot of names. There's places. There are people. These are eyewitness memories. And specifically, Luke's memory. Did you notice? First person plural. We. Luke is now a part of the story. As you recall, the book of Acts is volume two of a two-volume set, the Gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts. Both of these are written to a Christian by the name of Theophilus. And Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, tell us that Luke personally investigated and did the research talking to eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry. And here, Peter and Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. And now Luke joins the company of witnesses as he's relating to Theophilus this harrowing storm and shipwreck that occurred. What is that about? Well, I really think it's about this big idea that God will often take us where we do not want to go to produce in us and through us what would not be produced otherwise. And that's what I want us to see as we consider this chapter. It begins in verse 1 where Paul had exercised his right of Roman citizenship 
to appeal his case before the emperor himself. So Caesar is going to judge Paul's case. And if you know anything about Roman history, you would know that the emperor at the time was a rascal by the name of Nero. So Paul is going to Rome to have his case heard before Nero himself. And so he's transferred under the custody of a centurion by the name of Julius, and they find a ship that's traveling uh, toward Rome, departing from Caesarea. Their first stop, as you look at the map, is at a place called Sidon. You see that in verse 3? And evidently, Paul was a low-maintenance prisoner. Evidently, Julius had heard about Paul's character and that he was not going to be a flight risk. Basically, what we see in verse 3 is Julius telling Paul, I understand you have friends that you want to visit in Sidon. As long as you're on the boat tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. when we disembark, then you're free to go. And that's how much liberty that he had. And Paul saw his friends there, and he was cared for. Now, just stop right there for just a minute, because I have this question, and it's this. How did those Christian friends in Sidon get there? Well, if you go back and you remember, the book of Acts tells us that Christianity began in Jerusalem, but then in chapter 8, there was this massive persecution that occurred that scattered the believers from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and beyond, including Sidon. And so there were believers there in Sidon because of the persecution. And who was responsible for the persecution? You got it, John. Paul was. Isn't that something? So the very people who had been driven out of Jerusalem into Sidon, because of Paul, the persecutor, were the very people who ministered to Paul as an apostle. He will take you where you'd rather not go to produce what would not be produced otherwise. Well, the next day, they set sail from um, Sidon, and uh, they went up to a place called Myra. And Luke says that the ship was out in the open sea and yet near the coast, because that's how they sailed back then. They didn't really stray too far from the coast they wanted to stay in case there were issues and troubles. And so when they get to Myra, uh, that's where they change ships. So this ship from Adramidium now becomes a ship from Alexandria. And it's a cargo ship. Uh, keep in mind, this is not the Royal Caribbean. This is, a, this, is a, this is a trucker. And on the Mediterranean, going into the Adriatic Sea, and there's 276 passengers on board, and not all of them are going to Rome for the same reason that Paul is going to Rome. Paul is a Roman citizen, and he's going to stand trial before Nero, but there were prisoners as well. Now, why would prisoners go to Rome? To the Colosseum for the gladiatorial games. Now, not everybody was excited to go to Rome on that boat. But once they left Myra, sailing was very
very difficult and slow and arduous. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days, arrived with difficulty off uh, Canidus as the wind did not allow us to go farther. And we finally got to the Lee of Crete off Salmony. And then it, uh, verse 8, because coasting along with difficulty, we came to a, finally they landed at a place called Fair Havens. And we learn in verse 9 why the sailing was so difficult. It was after the fast. What's that? After the fast. After the fast, that's the Day of Atonement, which would have put the time of sailing around the fall. In fact, in the year A.D. 59, the Day of Atonement was October the 5th. So it was after that. And why is that significant? Because from November to, say, April, the shipping shut down in terms of sea travel because it was just too difficult. It was just too stormy. But there was this, you know, iffy time, and that was in October, where it was hit and miss, and it was risky. It could be done, but I don't know. And Paul is telling the centurion. He's telling the captain. He's telling the owner. You know, I've been... I've traveled 3,000 miles. I, I've been doing this for three decades now. This doesn't look good. We should stay at Fair Havens. And, and the pilot said, nah, you're a pastor. What do you know? We can go to, we can go to Phoenix on the, on the far end of Crete, and, and we'll be closer to Rome. And the closer we are to Rome, then uh, the sooner we'll get the cargo there. And the sooner we get the cargo there, the sooner we'll get paid. And that's that's what he wanted to do. And the centurion um, sided with the pilot and the owner. And it looked like that was the right thing to do. Verse 13 says, when the south wind blew gently, that's exactly what would have been helpful. And supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and they sailed along Crete close to shore. It's going to be great until it wasn't. And I mean out of nowhere. There, the skies just cut loose. And Luke says a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from land. And I mean, it just spun the ship out into the Mediterranean. And it was, it, they, and they were, this didn't happen for just one day or two days or three days, but 14 days this storm just terrorized the crew and and they had to get rid of their cargo to lighten the load so they lost their cargo and then they lost their bearings they didn't have doppler radar back then they had the stars and they had the moon and i mean they couldn't see a thing because of the rain and the clouds and the storm so they lost their cargo and then they lost their bearings and then Worst of all, verse 20, experienced sailors now. They lost hope. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. My goodness. It, it was that moment in time when they just really believed, this is it. We're going to die right here. We're going to be lost at sea, and our bodies are never going to be recovered. It, that's it. Now, if I'd have been on that boat, I, 
I would have asked some questions. Paul doesn't, but I would have asked questions. Lord, you said that we were going to Rome. You said you promised that we were going to go to Rome. Right? Um, every outward indication seems to suggest that you do not want us to go to Rome. Why are you making this so difficult? And am I the only one who's ever asked that question? I'm, I'm trying to do God's will. Why are you making this so hard? Help me. Hey, you can just almost hear Tom Cruise. Maybe this is where Tom Cruise got that line. To Cuba Gooding, right? Jerry Maguire? Oh, really? Am I the only one who's watched Jerry? Okay, I'm, am I with you? Thank you. What, what, what's he Help me. Help you. Help me help you. Because I'm, I'm trying to help you. You're welcome. Help me help you. Help me, right? I mean, wh what, why are you making this so difficult? And church family, here is where we learn the cost of following Christ. Here is where we learn what Paul uh, means in Philippians when he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Here is where we learn what Jesus meant when he said of Paul earlier in Acts, this man is my chosen instrument. I must show him how much he will suffer for my name. And why, why does it have to be that way? Oh, we're just going to have to make peace with this truth. Uh, that, you know, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be a leader, you've got to be a servant. That, that Christ dying in my life is what brings the life of Christ in the lives of others. And there's just no way around that. There's just no way around that. And I think that's what we see here. Well, um, I read an essay this week by a pastor. Uh, it really resonated with me. The essay's title is, When Your Calling Feels Like Death. Hmm. See, we don't want to hear that, do we? We want to hear that, the call to serve God is this euphoric, floating, happy, church campy type of feeling. And that's not what we see in Acts chapter 27, is it? In fact, the call to serve Christ, and I'm not just talking about church work or vocational ministry or going to the mission field. I'm talking about following Christ, tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., you got to deal with a crazy maker in your office. I'm talking about that. The call to follow Christ is, will take you places where heaven will be silent and God will seem absent. Are you still willing to follow Christ in those terms? Because that was Jesus. That was Jesus. The, fall to, the call to follow Christ is the call to say, not my will but thine be done. What Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Father, take this cup before me, out of my hand. Take this cup of suffering away from me, if at all possible, but not my will, but thine be done. Do you think that was just nice spiritual poetry Jesus was saying? That was his heart. But God will take you where you do not want to go to produce in you would not, what would not be produced otherwise. Rich Mullins uh, was a Christian singer in the 90s, and before his death, at one of his concerts, uh, he gave this insight. He said, the great people of faith that I know of didn't always feel close to God, as if feeling close to God on an emotional level. He said, the people that I know who are close to God don't know what that's like either. Because being close to God is more volitional than emotional. And it's not that, it's not that the joy or the peace never ever come when you're obedient. It's just that being close to God is about obedience. And I know this, Rich Moan said, if you are disobedient, you don't have a shot. Following in the footsteps of Christ sometimes means going to places where you would rather not go or, or remaining in places where you'd rather not stay or praying for situations that may never, ever change. And still God is working through you to love and give His grace. What is that about? That is about understanding that following God is not about demonstrating your awesomeness. It's about demonstrating His gracefulness. And one thing we see here in these verses, this is what, this is what someone looks like who is not on stage. Paul's not in a synagogue Paul's not teaching. Paul's not lecturing before the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Paul's not standing before the Areopagus. Paul is a prisoner on a boat in a storm that's about to go down. And here we see his character and his faith. And I think what God is doing and why this is here is that he's teaching us that he's stripping everything away from us until we have nothing left but him. We have nothing left but Christ. Uh, Paul put it this way in verse 23, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That's it. He's, he, he's, everything, everything's going to break up here. The cargo's not going to make it to Rome. The tackle's not going to make it to Rome. The ship is not going to make it to Rome. It's going to be you and God. And that's it. And that's enough. That's enough. It was enough for Edwin Moat. Pastor Edwin Moat. Pastor Edwin Moat was going to see his friend that day. His friend's wife was actually dying. And... His friend asked him if he would come. Edwin was a pastor. What do you say to someone on their last day of life? What do you say? 
he scribbled down some verses that he was thinking about. And when he got to her bedside, he actually recited these verses. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but solely lean on Jesus' name. Huh? It's that beautiful hymn that we know. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And then there's this verse. Here it is. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. What's that? That's a, that's a reference to the, to the veil in the temple that marks off the most holy place from the holy place. The holy of holies from the holy place. The veil. And the anchor goes with it. What's an anchor doing in the holy of holies? Well, the anchor's not a what. The anchor is a who. And Pastor Edward was referring to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. But we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, behind the veil. The anchor is a who. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. What a beautiful picture. Jesus, our high priest, whose death, burial, and resurrection, he has sailed through the celestials, and his pierced and resurrected hands anchor themselves to that gold-plated Ark of the Covenant before the throne room of God. He is anchored there, and by grace through faith, we join him in that. And so he is our anchor. And there's no Jesus and. There's just Jesus. And when you are in a storm, you need an anchor. What you don't need are principles. What you don't need are survival strategies. What you don't need is someone barking out to you, row harder, row harder, pray more, pray more. And what you don't need is Jesus and. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and my righteousness. Really? Is that all you got? I'm drowning and you're handing me my coffin. Thank you very much. No. No, what you need is an anchor for the soul. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. And I think that's what we're learning here in Acts chapter 27. I mean, everything's going to be lost, but, but that is broken away so that so that we can trust God's unbreakable promises. Because when that gets etched into the, to the heart of your soul, then you can say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because the fact of the matter is, and you know this, not everybody survives a brain aneurysm. And not everybody survives a marriage. And not everybody survives a job. So are you willing to trust God when every reason says otherwise?
That's what we're looking at here. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 is this beautiful roster of faith. And we hear about the mighty works that God did through the faithful. 11.33 says, who through faith conquered kingdoms and enforced justice and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword. Women received back their dead by resurrection and, and some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. You see, the world was not worthy of them. He will take you where you do not want to go to produce in you what could not be produced otherwise. And I think that's what's going on here in these verses. And 14 days later, the skies finally break. And uh, they see land. It's the island of Malta. And they get ready to just run the ship aground. And one last scare. I mean, this is one as if they've survived everything else. Then the soldiers unsheathe their swords, getting ready to kill all the prisoners, including Paul. Really? This is how it's going to be? Why would they do that? Because, well, they were responsible for the prisoners with their own lives. And if the prisoners abandoned ship, you know, and Julius said, sheathe your sword. Swim if you know how to swim. If not, grab a plank and paddle. And Luke tells us that after two weeks, in a ship that had been their home in such a terrifying time, it finally breaks apart under the battering of the waves. And 276 terrified men Merchants, businessmen, ship owners, soldiers, apostles, sailors, slaves, prisoners. In a sudden equality of emergency, they gasp and they splash their way to shore. And there's no distinction. All of them are soaked. All of them are waterlogged. All of them are exhausted. All of them are freezing. Rank and wealth mean nothing on that day. But they all crawl on dry land, and their trial by water is over. And once again, Paul has trusted in the God who raises the dead. He promised, he promised Paul that he would preach the gospel before Caesar, and so, you know, if all 276 would have perished at sea, Jesus would have raised them back to life. That's it. That's all they had to go on. They're wet, they're tired, but they're alive. And they're on their way to Rome. Jesus takes us where we'd rather not go to produce in us what we could never produce on our own. And I want you to know that your testimony to Christ is more powerful from within the storm. And, and contrary to the, to the beliefs of what has been called the prosperity gospel, where, where if you just believe enough, you can be healthy and wealthy. And I don't see how anybody can believe the tenets of the prosperity gospel having read Acts chapter 27. 
God mysteriously makes you a fellow traveler who experiences hardship so that he can display his hope in you and for you and through you. And do you know that before Paul met the brothers and sisters in Christ in the city of Rome, he wrote the book of Romans to them. And in Romans 5, 3 through 5, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't know who Glenna Marshall is, but I sure appreciate um, what she wrote about her 10-year-old son. She said, my son is healthy in the ways that matter the most, but the next 10 years hold some very restrictive treatments that will further isolate an already timid child. He's not in pain now, but he might be in the future. She wrote, we've been with doctors and specialists for hours, and after a battery of tests in the children's hospital, I was eating with him in the cafe. He was munching on a waffle. I was munching on my salad. Finally, my son looked at me in the eye. He said, Mom, I do not want to do this. His words hung in the air. Glenna said, you're the mom. Jesus, help me be strong. Help me be strong. And then she wrote these words. She said, you know, it is one thing to trust the Lord with your own shipwreck, but it is an excruciating thing to trust him with your child's shipwreck. She said, I don't want hard things for my kids. I want them to be happy and well-adjusted. I want them to know the sweetness of God's goodness and the faithfulness of his presence. I want to protect them from evil and suffering and sadness. And then she said this, basically, I want them to trust God like their life depends on it without their life actually depending on it. But I know that shipwrecks train us to trust and so that night when I tucked my son into bed, I heard him whisper his fear into the dark. Mom, I just want my old life back. His words knifed an actual pain in my chest. I felt it throb right next to my aorta. I curled up next to him. I cut my hand around his cheek so he'd look me right in the eye. I said, this is hard stuff. There's no doubt about it. God is having you walk a hard road. And then she said, do you know that when your dad and I got married, we had a really hard road to walk to? A doctor told me something was wrong with my body. She told me that it was called infertility. It meant that I couldn't be a mom, and I didn't like it, and I didn't want to have it. And I just wanted my old life back. I was sad for a long time. But then one day, years later, your dad and I adopted you. And we love you so much. 
And if I'd gotten my old life back, I wouldn't have you. And so in my really sad days, God was being good to me. He was teaching me to trust him. He's really good at using our sadness for good because he loves us. And nobody can do that like God can. And then my son gave me a small smile. And he said, okay, mom. And he went right to sleep. Verse 44, and so it was that all were brought safely to land.